And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg, and Bill Newman is off today. Um, Dan, there has been much talk overnight about Judge Aileen Cannon, the Trump-appointed uh, um, uh, U.S. District Judge uh, in the district where Mar-a-Lago is situated, uh, having asked the Justice Department and Donald Trump and his co-defendant, Walt Nauta, to weigh in on the legality of the special counsel's, that's Jack Smith's, ongoing grand jury activity in Washington, D.C., relating to the obstruction portion of that Mar-a-Lago documents case that's before her in Florida. Uh, folks might know that what happened was there was a grand jury convened in Washington, D.C. to look into this. Many of the witnesses, the documents came from Washington, D.C., there's uh, an ongoing what we call a transaction or occurrence. That is, first what happened is there's an allegation that Donald Trump uh, unlawfully took the documents, including classified documents, from the White House and then transported them to Mar-a-Lago where he uh, maintained them, moved them about, and then when was he was confronted with a subpoena, from the FBI to uh, search for them. He said this is all there is, where he was hiding other boxes of such documents that he failed or refused to disclose uh, to the FBI. So that uh, resulted in obstruction charges. Um, what happened was, in I think in June, in May or June, uh, there was another grand jury convened to look into the obstruction charges down there, and Jack Smith, who could have brought it in either jurisdiction as far as I know, um, the, the Sixth Amendment, Dan, mm. says that in all criminal prosecutions uh, that uh, complaints, uh, charges should be brought in the district in which the offense allegedly occurred. In this case, the theft was allegedly occurring in Washington, D.C. The obstruction uh, was, uh, and the retention of those documents unlawfully, was happening uh, down in Palm Beach, Florida, and that uh, therefore there's uh, a, an election to be made by the special by the uh, special counsel, Jack Smith. The judge, I think, wrongfully, is asking both um, defendants, lawyers, and Jack Smith's team of prosecutors representing Justice Department to comment on whether or not uh, continuing to have a grand jury investigate the alleged. Um, uh, obstruction charges was constitutional or not. That's that's what they were asked or ordered to write on by Judge Cannon. I have a question for you. Is the grand jury in D.C. or Florida? Because I'm confused. You should be confused. There were two grand juries. Oh, there's two. And her, her concern is that the grand jury in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. on the obstruction stuff. I don't think, I mean, I obviously haven't read it, it yet we haven't seen her order yet. We just have seen re, uh, reports of her order, but I think that she. I'm inferring from the little bit that I've seen that her concern is that the Washington D.C. grand jury continued to uh, consider and investigate whether or not an obstruction had happened when that obstruction was to have happened in Mar-a-Lago. And mm. she's questioning the propriety of that. I don't think there's any question that it is proprietous, but, um, you know, this is the same judge who was spanked 
by her appeals court, the Circuit Court of Appeals um, for her district, um, when she ordered a special master to look into the evidence saying that the defense and the Justice Department have the equal right to look at, uh, at the documents that are allegedly going into evidence. And it sort of demonstrated an inherent distrust of the Justice Department to investigate crimes. She was spanked royally, even by the conservative appellate division that she was before. You know, all of this makes me think that the underlying issue is that they, well, Trump uh, lawyers and Trump himself want the cases in Florida because he thinks he's going to get a fairer deal or a better jury than in Washington, D.C. It may and very well have be been that that's what Jack Smith thought, too, that yeah. maybe to take away that argument yeah. that he brought the charges um, in Florida. Know. Yeah. That's what makes me think. Well, it's enough to make you just want to grab Kick a drink back and have a drink there you go nice segue dan torres <laughs> segue into a delightful article that appeared in the the recorder back in i think july 22nd i'm now seeing it um uh it was a piece uh the headline of which is uh in quotes have a pint outside and watch the fireflies where to drink craft beer outside in franklin county Obviously caught my eye, this article, this, uh, this piece by Dominic Poli, who's joining us uh, virtually, but nevertheless joining us. Hello, Dominic Poli. You're a staff writer for The Recorder, and I'm so glad to have you with us. Good to be here, Buzz. How are you? Well, this was a fun and interesting article, and I, and I, I learned some stuff about the region in which I live and, and about the... Good, I'm glad. Yeah, so talk to us about... I, I think, first of all, how long have you been a reporter for the Greenfield Recorder? Uh, I've been here about seven years, a little over seven years. And just give us the short synopsis, because those of us who are always curious about you guys, how you find stories, how you chase them down, and uh, what you think we should be uh, learning about. Uh, tell us about that process. <clears throat> well, the process, at least specifically here, we, we have a staff meeting with all the editors and the reporters um, every Wednesday. And we talk about what we what we're working on that day and what we're working on for the next week, uh, mostly to give the editors, you know, a, a heads up of what they can expect and a chance to give some inputs and uh, kind of put feelers out to the other reporters if if they feel they can offer any input that's helpful. And uh, we talk about uh, the the everyday uh, news stories that we're working on as well as the feature stories that we're working on. And our feature editor, a features editor, was sitting in with us um, in the in the room I'm sitting in now, and she was wondering, um, you know, what features ideas we had brewing in our heads. Pun very much intended. And um, we we gave her our suggestions, and then she said she had brought this idea up probably since late May of wanting to do a brewery tour specifically of outdoor breweries. And there weren't any takers for a little while. I think as much as it was intriguing, we all knew what I knew was that the logistics would be kind of a pain in balancing that with our everyday stories. So there were no takers for a few weeks. And she brought it up. Um, can't remember the exact week she brought it up, but she she brought it up again, kind of looked confused as to why, you know, young reporters weren't jumping at a brewery tour story. And... <laughs> Uh -huh. she, she seemed pretty confused. And then I chimed in and said, you know, the, the logistics could be a bit difficult. It would be time consuming. It might take away from the other 
stories we're writing about select board meetings, about court stories, all of this. I said, if you're willing to be patient and work with me, I'll take the story. And she said, yes, we, we can work on, you know, we can get you a good deadline. We can accommodate any logistics. We'll, we'll do what we need to do. So I said, okay. And, and I hopped on the story and we just <clears throat> worked on the list of breweries. We wanted to span the county, get to Northeast, South, South and West. And I said, you know, if, if the feature section can be patient about me getting to each one and work, you know, interviewing some people and working on the story while also balancing my other responsibilities, I'll get it done by deadline and the rest is history. Well, there we go. Dominic Poli. Dan, um, I just want to read the lead. Okay. This selfless man whose professionalism outweighed his desire to do a piece on uh, craft <laughs> beers here. He starts with, to all of you out there reading this online in print, there is something I desperately need to confess. For a portion of my July, I have been drinking on the job. <laughs> what say you, Dan? Toy? That's great. Uh, well, here, here's my big question in hearing all of this for the very first time. It is, tell me what's your favorite place in Franklin County to grab a drink. Oh, and we're going to go there. Hold on. But then, and why? Why is it your favorite place? That's what asking, I want Are you asking Dominic Poli, the, the seasoned reporter, to tell, go straight to the end of the story oh, without telling we're the gonna end it. I want it to be the beginning here. Come on, tell us why. Well, why don't you run through what you did, where you did it, what the breweries are that we all should be aware of and test out, and then we'll go to the grand finale. Oh, What's your fave? God. Dominic. Okay. Yeah. So, what, yes. which so, breweries did you visit? Went to? Yeah, please. Yeah, we wanted to pick, like I said, north, east, south, and west. Didn't want them to all be concentrated in one specific section of the county. And we, um, it, it had, they had specifically needed to have outdoor seating. Um, I, I can genuinely say, Buzz, that I did not dislike a single place or beer that I went to. <laughs> I, I, I can honestly say that. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Treehouse in in uh, South Deerfield, though. The um, it's 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 something to behold. Okay, that's at one community place in South Deerfield. Tell us about that brewery. So that used to be the Channing Beats um, campus for, I believe it was uh, 63, 64 years, and they printed uh, health material. Um, they lost a contract with the American Heart Association, and unfortunately, they uh, th they just had to, to close up. Um, and they employed a lot of people there, and they have this beautiful campus. This was in um, in 2019, and so uh, Treehouse, um, which has been growing rapidly in popularity, uh, seized the you know seized the opportunity and and got the property, and uh, they, they made it into their own. And uh, it, it's it's just it's a great it's a really really amazing place to be. Well, I, I want to know this about craft brewery. Um, why has it grown so much in this area in recent years? Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably tough to say. I mean, for, for for many many years, you know, the only beer you could get really was um, you know, just just those big names, the big beer companies. And yeah, it's probably been within 25, 30 years that the craft brewery business has really been growing. And why is it growing in this area? I don't, I don't know. I think it. I think craft beer fits in well with the rest of the culture of Franklin County, sort of the 
small business artisan flavor um, th that comes with small breweries. Um, I, I think that's appealing to the people who live there and their, their, their lifestyles, I guess. Yeah. And do you think like the, the taste and the different type of beers has also grown and that has helped uh, increase the number of consumers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, year by year, um, small breweries are experimenting with, you know, their craft uh, artisan flavors, and that's just helping it get even more popular and grow even more. So you also looked at the uh, Four, Four Phantoms Brewing Company there on West I did. Street in Greenfield. What did you find there? There I found, um, it's actually the closest to my home, so I knew, exa knew exactly where it was. <laughs> and it's, it's a nice little spot. You can sit indoors. You can sit outdoors. Uh, it's a small spot. It used to be Lefty's Brewery, uh, Lefty's Brewing Company. And when, when they closed, uh, Four Phantoms uh, moved into that spot. I think it opens fall of 2021 is what I have in the story. And uh, I've talked to the owner, Drew Phillips, a few times. And uh, I believe it was last summer, they got a permit for um, outdoor seating from the city of Greenfield. And it's, it's a really nice little spot. Um, they, they have a lot of beer, especially uh, considering the, you know, sort of small, small quarters that they have there. Um, I had the uh, Pajama District, which is a breakfast cereal pastry sour made with Fruit Loops and raspberry puree. And I know what you're thinking, but it works. Come on. Does that work? It does. I it always does. think it's it like foo-foo beer, but you're saying it really, what makes it work? I it, mean, what about it is works? Um, it's probably the balance of the Fruit Loop cereal in with the uh, raspberry puree. <laughs> I, I think it's the, ba the balancing that comes with the puree, that it's not just breakfast cereal. It, it balances it out. And um, it, it's definitely a, a different type of beer. A lot of people aren't crazy about sours, and that's that's fine if that's not your not your thing. But uh, it, I, like I wrote in the story, they promoted it with a promotion. You could get a free artisan donut from Adam's Donut Shop if you if you bought a beer. Um, it was a, a one particular weekend, and and I did go and um, and try it, and it, it shouldn't. It's one of those things it shouldn't work but it does look it, it might be raining today we're gonna have some spot thunder showers but i don't know uh, of a better topic to talk about uh in the heat that we've been experiencing in the summer than supporting local craft breweries when they serve their beer outdoors and you can enjoy it we are talking with dominic poli we're going to take a break and we're going to come back there i just want to make sure that we can in this story are highlighted, of course, the Berkshire Brewing Company, which uh, is, uh, I, I've, I've been using their beers, not drinking them outdoors, but purchasing their, their beer and like their beer, particularly their brown ale. Element Brewing Company from Miller's Falls, the brewery at Four Star Farms in Northfield, Hitchcock Brewing Company in Bernardston, and Floodwater in Shelburne Falls. We're going to continue our conversation with recorder reporter, Staff writer Dominic Poli on his really delightful feature story. Have a pint outside and watch the fireflies. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. 
hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door's open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. Your local agent working in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're engaged with uh, staff writer of The Recorder, uh, Dominic Poli, a, a perfectly appropriate, uh, timely, seasonal conversation about his article about where to drink craft beer outside in Franklin County. And I, I guess uh, before we go through the other breweries that you uh, wrote about in your piece, which I loved, Dominic, obviously I invited oh, you, you on the show because I loved it. It was well-written and it was you. really interesting. But so here's the big question. Here's a $64,000 yeah. question. Sure. When you go to a winery and you have, uh, you, you're doing a tasting, it's the adventure of finding out what you're about to taste. Yeah, also, sitting with a glass of wine you know, in a vineyard is just an extremely positive experience. But here, here we have outside, you're tasting local, you're tasting local brews, um, locally crafted brews. Is it the adventure of what am I going to think of this or is it, how nice is it to sit outside and drink beer? Which is it that motivated you? Um, <clears throat> for me, what motivated me was definitely trying new beer. That was that was definitely what did it. Um, it as much as I loved all the outdoor areas, it, each each one each one was great. Uh, I, um, I I really did like going in actually completely blind, not knowing what would be on the menu, and then um, you, you look taking a look at the menu and and selecting one you know, semi-randomly. So in the five minutes or so that we have left, can you run through some of your other, the breweries that you uh, tried out? Yeah, sure. So there was, there was Treehouse, there was Four Phantoms. I went to uh, BBC, the Berkshire Brewing Company. That's the oldest one in the county. Um, that opened in, Deer, in Deerfield in 1994. That was really great. I had a uh, chocolate raspberry uh, bar, uh, barley wine that was 
one of one of the better beers uh, that I had had. Um, uh, you you might be noticing a pattern that I really enjoy uh, raspberry. You because, like fruit uh, and raspberry in particular. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, I do. Especially raspberry. Uh, so it's a barley wine imperial stout, and it came came in a goblet. Um, that was uh, one of the richer beers that I had that I had had, and um, may may have been the actual favorite beer that I had had on the on the brewery tour that I did. Also went to Elements, which um, has a huge science influence. Uh, every, everywhere you go um, in in the place is uh, you know there's uh, posters of the periodic table of elements and there's science <laughs> puns and science jokes all over the place. Uh, th their beers are named after planets and after uh, microbiology references and things like that. That was a lot of fun. I had a um, a a, a, a a gluten-free sake IPA. So the, the starch is made with brown rice, um, much like sake would be. And, th and that was very interesting. That's one of two sake beers that they have. And I I've had both, the other one being plasma. Uh, and they're both very good. Went to Hitchcock in Bernardston, and that was really good. I had the Hurricane Porter. Uh, that was the one place, I believe the one place I went where there, at the moment I was there, uh, had live music, which which was nice. It does make it more difficult to talk um, if if you're there with there with people. But um, but, but the music was very very nice, and it added to the ambiance. And this flood water, which is right by the beautiful bridge of flowers that that I really love, and uh, and right by right by the river, uh, which which is really really nice. And that was the most unique beer that I had had called Time Machine T Y T H Y M E because it was made with um, fresh thyme. That the owner Zach Livingston had picked himself. There's so much creativity involved in these craft beers. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I love about local beer. Well, look, I've been a defense attorney for 45 years, so let me ask the big question, which comes to my mind: How do sure. you keep from over drinking a bit and then getting in your car to go to your next assignment, and uh, you know, uh, fall into the hands of "Oops, there's a cop following me"? Uh, so, how, how do you taste never... your? Go ahead. Yeah, I've, I've never really, I've never overindulged with with alcohol, and I'm not saying that's a grandstand or anything. I I just haven't. <clears throat> once once I have enough, I <clears throat> I've I've had enough. I, I start to not feel in control anymore. But as a, a taster, you know, if you go to a vineyard to taste wine, they usually they have a spittoon, so you can just uh, sure. put it in yeah, your mouth. Roll yeah, it you wouldn't do that with beer. That wouldn't that wouldn't <laughs> be well taken. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. It also, because it's carbonated, might end up going up your nose when you wash it around in your mouth a little yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, well, uh, Dan, you, you asked the big question when we started. I'm not sure if you got your answer yet, but go I ahead. haven't heard it. Okay. What's your favorite place okay. and why? Favorite place is probably Treehouse, um, a, a mix of the ambiance, the, the, the campus, and the beer and the food options. Um, and the enter the entertainment availability that's there. They have a great stage, and they hosted uh, Graham Nash, uh, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, last summer, I'm a big CSNY fan. Um, I, I didn't get to see him, unfortunately, but uh, I was definitely jealous of everybody who did. Okay, okay, okay. And I, I thought of another question here yeah. uh, about beer, these craft beers. What's your favorite beer that you tried? That that I tried probably, but probably the one at BBC, probably the barley wine imperial stout. Okay, a stout. That's a pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you talk about porters and stouts, and 
you know, there's Munich's, there are these heavier yep. Guinnessy kind of beers, right? That's what I like. A lot that of people too. associate that strictly with the winter. I find something very cooling and soothing about it in the summer. Mm. Um, and I like an I like a pale ale or an IPA in the summer, sure, but a lot, a lot of people are turned off by the heavier ones, the darker ones in summer. I find them very, very cooling and soothing, though. So my final question, Dominic Poli, is: Yeah, uh, am I right in drawing a connection between somebody who has to cover Greenfield politics and consumption of beer? There might be a correlation, Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> it's direct cause and effect. <laughs> it's causation. Dominic, I really loved reading this, and I'm going to try some of these. It's it's really nice to good. I'm glad. Yeah, focus on our local craft brewery industry and um, the fact that you can drink outside and enjoy this locally crafted beers. And I think it's, you know, your editor had a really good idea. It's a service to people to read about what their options are. And I think you did a great job. Thank you so much for joining us and for the article. Thanks so much for having me guys. Okay. Dominic Poli. Thank you. We're going to be next with Duke Goldman. We got a lot to talk about. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. It helps me unwind. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Deerfield woman accused of stabbing an 82-year-old Montague man is pleading not guilty. 29-year-old Katie Flanagan was working for the wife of the man she allegedly stabbed as a personal care attendant. The victim alleges he was stabbed by Flanagan while sitting in his wheelchair in the kitchen, listening to his police scanner. Flanagan alleges the man made sexual advances toward her, and she used the knife to defend herself. The case was moved on Friday to Franklin Superior Court due to its severity. A pretrial hearing is scheduled for December 5th. Northampton is considering its own pregnancy center ordinance in an effort to strengthen women's rights to reproductive and gender-affirming care. City Councilor Rachel Maori is leading the charge, working with the Board of Health to gain their full endorsement. A similar ordinance was vetoed in East Hampton by East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. Six of seven boat ramps along the Connecticut River are now open. The State Department of Fish and Game made the announcement yesterday after having to close them for several weeks due to the flooding. The Oxbow Ramp in East Hampton, the ramp off Main Street in Hatfield, and the Sunderland Ramp on School Street are among those access points to the river that are now reopened. Private marinas, including Brunel's in South Hadley and Sportsman's Marina in Hadley, are also back open. Massachusetts environmental police are still urging caution, however, due to significant changes in the channels, river currents, and bank erosion. Humid and stormy out there today, potentially strong storms even this morning, and then another round of scattered showers and storms this afternoon. Be ready to get inside if you have outdoor plans. A high of 78 to 82, lingering evening shower tonight, then partial clearing, an overnight low of 58 to 64. Mostly sunny breezy here tomorrow, a high of 82 to 86, another round of showers possible on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. 
People here are raving about QC Kinetics and how regenerative medicine has changed their life. People like Helen, an avid mountain climber who got sidelined when an accident left her knees in constant pain. I was not able to train or do really anything on my knee. Helen was told surgery would be her only option. But then she found QC Kinetics and was treated with natural biologics designed to repair and restore tissue in her knees. Three months later, she was climbing the highest mountain in North America. I got a very quick resolution to my pain. I began treatment in March, and I summited Denali June the 7th. It was super successful, and I recommend everyone seek out QC Kinetics as an alternative to surgery. Get your life back with lasting results. No surgery, no drugs, no downtime. Call QC Kinetics today. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Cabbage keeps for months. Corn is good for a day or two. And basil, make that pesto pronto. There's so much farm fresh food all around you. So stop at a farm stand, go to the farmer's market, and look for the bright yellow Local Hero label at stores and restaurants. You live among some of the best farmland in the world. The bright yellow Local Hero label says, this food is farm fresh. Use CISA's Local Hero guide at buylocalfood.org to find local food close by. Klazuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the, and the Duke. And we are here with Duke Goldman. I love this time of the month when we get to talk baseball. We are just talking about these wonderful local craft beer manufacturers and how wonderful it is uh, to sit outside and enjoy some locally brewed beer uh, with Dominic Poli. But um, we have local heroes all over. And in the arena of baseball, there's one really special hero who um, sadly passed away recently, Duke Goldman. Um, we're talking about John Bowman. So John Bowman was a friend of mine who passed away a week and a half ago. At the age of 92, John lived a wonderful, very full life. Um, John's wife, Franny, um, organized with her children, Alex and Michaela, a memorial at Look Park that Bill Newman and I attended on um, Sunday. And Franny listens to this show, so I want to give a shout-out to Franny. Um, I visited with Franny and John quite a bit in the last few months. John spent uh, most of the last year at Linda Manor, and um, he lived a great life. Um, John was an editor, a writer. I would call him a Renaissance man and also an autodidact, which means he learned from everyone and everything. He read so widely. He wrote so widely. He wrote on... He wrote a memoir of his life growing up during the Great Depression. He wrote a book on animal rights in the late 60s, early 70s. He was a specialist on Crete, um, the island of Crete, and he wrote a travel book, and he wrote books on baseball. And his son Alex got up at this memorial and said, you know, my dad was really not a sports person at all, but I got into baseball, and so my dad went out there and played catch with me until he couldn't anymore because I threw too hard which speaks to um, the notion of fathers playing catch with 
Catch With Their Sons, which was a great book written by a wonderful poet named Donald Hall. Uh, so I don't know if John really was... It also was the end of Field of Dreams. Correct. Of course, another great motif of American life. And um, I don't know if John was really that into baseball uh, before Alex, who's now about 50 years old, started playing catch with his dad. But shortly thereafter, John, who worked for a number of the publishing houses in New York, was asked to write a baseball book. And he wrote a book with a guy named Joel Zoss, who was really more of a music guy. John, I remember telling me, you know, I wasn't all that knowledgeable about the, the, the hidden past of baseball, but we got the idea to write a book about the untold stories. And so he and Joel Zoss wrote a book called Diamonds in the Rough, which came out in the late 1980s, before a lot of people knew the untold stories of baseball, particularly about the Negro Leagues. And I've read that book. And, you know, John really delved deeply into some of these hidden histories of what baseball was and how baseball was connected with America. Well, we are... Obviously, really sorry for your loss and his family's loss. It sounds like this region suffered a loss. It's, how important is it to you that John was John Bowman was local? Well, what John went on to do was he wrote a history of Northampton baseball. He and Brian Turner, who sadly also passed away a couple of years ago, and I, I, I paid tribute to him as well, together wrote a book uh, close to 20 years ago now called The Hurrah Game, which told the story of Northampton baseball, and in particular was the first book to uncover that there was an African-American gentleman named Luther Askins who played Northampton baseball back in the 1860s. So this is the kind of thing that John did. John wrote about the Roundhouse, uh, I think it was called the Roundhouse School back in the 1850s, um, in Northampton. He was interested in all things Northampton and, and, and the Pioneer Valley and had lived here uh, for, I believe, over 40 years. So he was a person who made this area what it is, people who contribute so much to the stories and the richness of what this valley is. And he was just a gentleman, um, a person who was modest, engaging, just a, an all-around great guy, and he'll be greatly missed. He'll be greatly missed. And I want to thank you, Duke, for uh, bringing his passing to our attention. And... Um I hate to get mundane, but I'm just going to shift. We had a trade deadline. We did. Uh, let me see. How much was cooking uh, for your Mets in the kitchen? How much was cooking for people's Red Sox and Yankees in the kitchen leading up to and including that deadline? So the Mets did a lot. They tore down their team to many people's surprise. They traded away their Two forty-plus million dollar a year first ballot Hall of Fame pitchers, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, for a bunch of prospects. So I think before we go further, people should know that the highest salaries, the highest payroll in baseball, I think, was your New York Mets, and I correct. Think second was Bill's New York Yankees. I right? believe so, and I believe third, perhaps, was Dan's San Diego Padres. <laughs> What'd you say about them, <laughs> Duke? Don't mess with well, me, Duke. I'll shut you off. I control the board here, Duke. Well, and, and apparently none of those three teams are really in playoff contention. The Padres did. Padres uh, are. They're trying. They're, they're, they're near the wild card. Three games, two they're, games. They're a few games out of the wild card, but not looking that good. No, um, and they won't make it far unless they have a, a, a special 
you know, break some some teams do get hot in the playoffs while they didn't have a great regular season. So anything's possible. Um, a very unlikely, but it's unlikely, and the likelihood is that the Yankees and the Red Sox are going to end up in fourth and fifth place. Okay, his vision. In so, their division. In their division. In their division. Now, here's my question for you, Duke, because we've had you on here and we talk about Red Sox, Yankees, but I have to know, nobody saw the Orioles doing what they did. How did they pull this off? The Orioles did a massive teardown. The Orioles lost 108 or more games three out of four years from 2018 to 2021. The last team that had done something that bad was the New York Mets expansion Mets of 1962 to 1965. The Orioles brought in a new management team and they went out and started from scratch. And their payroll is $70 million and they've won 70 games so far with that $70 million payroll. So something like the 24th lowest payroll. In, right. In, in Roughly $1 million per win. The Mets have a $350 million payroll and have so far won 50 games, roughly $7 million per win. And if you add their luxury tax, it gets closer to $10 million a win. So my question then is this. Are the Mets trying to replicate the success of the Orioles in Tampa Bay by saying we're going to rebuild from scratch and in three or four years we'll be competitive if we have the right players? They're hoping to do it in two or three or one or two, and this might be their fallacy because, you know what, I'm not so sure it works so well when you decide, well, we're going to go all in on young players, but as soon as we get a few good ones, we're going to go out and pay again $40 million for, you know, the next big star on the market because, you know what I think is really happening in baseball It's a game now more and more for young players, not for old superstars, because with all the analytics and the conditioning that they have today, and now with the added uh, element of a pitch clock and and more emphasis on speed, stealing because they've reduced the distance between the bases and made the bases a little bigger, it's young players who succeed. Mm. And the way to do it is really to obliterate what you have. Now, maybe the Mets will go that far. There is rumor that the Mets are going to let Pete Alonso go, their star first baseman who only has one year left on their contract. They may let go of, of, of Edwin Diaz, who missed this year as their ace closer. And then they may be able to replicate what the Orioles have done. And they have gone out and spent something like $60 million for um, a few prospects from the Astros and from the Texas Rangers. All right, this is Dan. I have to ask about the Red Sox here. Because it's a lot of local team. I mean, they've been trying to do this rebuild model, not trying to overpay for the big stars and trying to build their team up, right? And what are they ranked 12th, I guess, in payroll, 14th? They're I don't in, remember. They're in the middle. They're somewhere. in the middle somewhere, but it hasn't worked out. They've been kind of in the bottom tier, not succeeding. What's wrong with them? Because there must be something in the analytics of these teams rebuilding that is working. They, the Tampa Bay and the Orioles have figured something out in the rebuild that other teams haven't, right? Well, I keep coming back to the idea that living under the true constraint is the best way to do it. The Red Sox can still spend money, and so there's still a temptation to go out and pay and often overpay for players. One of the best things that happened to the Red Sox this offseason, apparently, is that they didn't re-sign Xander Bogart. Sorry, Red Sox fans. Bogarts is having a poor year for the Padres. There is some anecdotal evidence that players that sign big contracts struggle in their first year, but you know what? He's over 30 years old. 
and he has signed for something like six or seven years with the Padres. Sure, the Red they're, Sox they're, are better off without him. Right. The issue about whether to go young or go with established superstar Albert Pujols, you know, he went from St. Louis where he was, in, in a historic fashion, one of the great hitters of all time, one might argue, and then went to the Angels where he was just middle of the roading. And, uh, and Jim Carlos Stanton for the Yankees, he was gangbusters when in Florida, and then he came up to the Yankees in well, Giancarlo Stanton signed a 13-year contract. I would argue he is the most untradeable player in today's game because he still has six or seven years left, and he is now a one-tool player. He still hits, as John Sterling would say, Stantonian home runs, and in between, <laughs> he hits 200. Yeah. And he mostly plays designated hitter and is not a good defender. So that's what you get stuck with. You get stuck with one-dimensional players or has-been players who are being overpaid. Albert Pujols, the Cardinals celebrated, quite honestly, when he went off to the Angels because his stats were declining. And then the Angels signed him for 10 years. Miguel Cabrera is still playing for the Tigers and is a 250 singles hitter, DH, in the last... I believe he even has one more year on his contract, but he's not going to play it because he's just no good anymore. Well, let's look at this from 10,000 feet, Duke Goldman. You are... A member of the Society of American Baseball Researchers. You are a writer and an author on baseball. You are truly an expert on baseball. But this is an old question. Do we sell Babe Ruth and rely on younger replacements? Is It's not a new question. And Moneyball, when I first read Moneyball, the story was, well, there's a different way to look at players than went the ways we historically have. And we don't have to go with big-name players. Where do you land on this sort of... Uh, continuum, the, the mix between seasoned, proven veterans and like the guy who hit a grand slam to end the Boston Red Sox uh, uh, losing streak last night. I never heard of him. Had you heard of him? I, I saw his, he's Pablo, it's not Pablo Cruz because that was an old uh, that answers my band question. of the 70s. <laughs> Pablo something. Um, you know, he's a guy who's just come up recently. Yeah. Uh, Reyes. 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 There Pablo Reyes. Thank you. Um, Where do you land on that question? I guess I land that what makes what makes a good salad? A mix mm. of ingredients, mm. right? Seasoned properly. And so a good team is a team that has a mix. It has a blend. It has some veterans who have experience, knowledge, can help the team in the clubhouse because it's not all about analytics. But it also has a core of young, hungry, developing players who are getting better. Those are the best teams. It's very hard to capture that magic, right? And, you know, for all we want to say about Moneyball, Oakland never made it to the World Series during, during all those years, right? San Francisco Giants then won three World Series in five years for teams that were, you know, not all that awesome, but they had a great manager, they had a good organization, and they had a blend. So it's all about putting all those pieces together and now surviving through what is four rounds of the playoffs really makes it difficult. It's kind of a crapshoot when you get to that point. Well, we, we know how the Mets and Brian Cashman of the Yankees are not faring so well in finding that blend. And the Red Sox, um, how's Kyle Bloom doing? Well, I mean, the Red Sox right the now... The general manager. Yeah, the I general know. manager of the Red Right now, the Red Sox are a little bit better than people thought they would be. I still think they're going to end up pretty close to 500. By the way, the last time the Red Sox and the Yankees came in last and second to last was 1966, when the Red Sox came in ninth 
and the Yankees came in 10th. Back then, they didn't have divisions. In the last 30 years, there have been, since divisional play started, where they had five teams per the division, there has never been a time where the Red Sox and Yankees came in fourth and fifth. Okay, and what year did Steinbrenner first buy the Yankees? So he bought the Yankees, I believe, in 73. There we go. Okay. Uh, so the, the Red Sox have tried to build more like the Tampa Bay model, and I don't think it's fully worked out yet. But they have acquired a few decent players. And, you know, Yoshida is doing well for them, and Jaron Duran is doing well for them. And, you know, uh, even though I, I don't really think Rafael Devers is a superstar, he's still about 26 years old and still has a lot of upside to his career. So at least as between him and um, signing Bogarts, I think they made the right choice. The Yankees are in trouble. The Yankees' ownership now, the, the second generation of Steinbrenners, they seem to be happy playing off the brand equity. And they're a bunch of old players, and they're not going anywhere. Mm. We are talking to Duke Goldman. It is Inside Baseball, and we are, I'm loving this conversation. We're going to take a break and be right back with the Duke. After this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank, with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. So we are back. We're talking, uh, well, I guess we're talking acquisition of talent to build a uh, team into a winner. And uh, we were just talking about, well, what's the better model? What's the right blend of buying uh, for a high price? Those who have proven themselves, these seasoned veterans who have 
uh, extraordinary numbers on the back of their baseball cards versus young players who are hungry, as Duke Goldman says, and looking to make their name in the big leagues. Uh, so uh, I'm thinking that there's something wrong with the farm systems of the Yankees and the Mets and the Red Sox that they just can't build and then identify the ones that are going to make a difference in terms of a pennant drive. What do you think? I, I would largely agree. You know, I don't want to put myself out as an expert for running a team because I've never done one, right? So let's start with that. Having said that, I think every organization has, in some sense, limited resources. And by that, I don't mean money. I mean the ability to do everything that needs to be done to make a winning team. And if you put your energy, your effort, and your money into, you know, going out and signing players, it's very hard to do that and also put all of it into building from the ground up the best developmental system. Now, if we look at the team that is arguably right now the best team in baseball, it's the Atlanta Braves. And I hate to say that because I can't stand that infernal chop that their fans do, and plus they're a Mets rival. But you know what? Their lineup is amazing. And they did it largely by building from the ground up. And also recognizing one of the best things you can do is sign good young players at the beginnings of their career when they've had one or two decent seasons with the team to long-term contracts at a lower rate. So you can keep your salaries down, develop a core that's excellent, and then when needed, add a piece or two. That's where you get that beautiful blend. So the, red, the, uh, the Braves let Freddie Freeman go and got in replacement Matt Olson, who's an incredible first baseman, arguably as good as Freeman, although Freeman's having an incredible year himself for the Dodgers, and they got him in a fire sale from Oakland. He's several years younger uh, than Freeman, a great first baseman, and leads the National League in home runs and RBIs. That's what develops a good team. It's very hard to do. If it was so easy to do, well, you know, everybody would be doing it. And in the end, all the teams are 500, right? So you can't all do it. Well, you know, listening to you and, and, you know, reading these analytics makes me think that the Yankees, Red Sox, and teams with bigger payrolls will start investing in their farm system, right? Because if you can spend uh, more money than the other teams and you can build up the farm system, then over the long run, you're going to get better p players. Now your fans just have to be patient and, and let that the process. Problem. Yeah. The problem is the fan base in Boston, in New York, are very impatient. They don't want to sit and watch a team develop. And that is part of what makes it hard for teams like Boston, Red Sox, and Yankees, and even Mets to find a way to be patient enough to let the young core develop. In Atlanta, I think the fans are more patient. Well, listen, to so all you general managers, I'm still available. This would be my 56th spring training. It would have been record-setting, Duke. What do you think? I think you should go for it. <laughs> I mean, after all, there's 40 and 39-year-old pitchers making $40 million a year, so you could, you know, offer yourself up at a quite a low rate. No, you know what? I do it for free, oh, well, except well. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. But other than that... So, so my final question is this, and we only have a minute for you to answer this huge question, which is winning versus putting on a, a very entertaining product, right? I really like the entertaining product more than emphasizing winning. How about you? I want to win, but I want to win while doing it in an exciting way. And I think baseball has finally figured out they have to make it more exciting. It had gotten so slow. 
I want to see bravura performances. To my mind, the best pitcher I ever saw pitch was Pedro Martinez because even when he pitched a shutout or gave up one or two runs, he was exciting. He had flair. He had style. That's what I ultimately do want to see on the field, and I want to see my team win. I once, I once read uh, about Pedro that he was the closest that baseball ever had to a jazz musician. He was always improvising. He was always surprising. What came off his hand was always something you didn't expect. And that's, you know, that's what makes it exciting to watch baseball is you see something you don't expect. And that's what's always exciting when Duke Goldman visits us in the studio. We always, we learn something and he gets us thinking about things which we really do. So, Dan, I'm, I've got bad news for you. Your San Diego Padres are going nowhere. Thanks, Buzz. Bill's Yankees are going it. nowhere. That's good news. <laughs> and, and Duke's Mets are going I agree. nowhere. But my Braves, watch out. Yeah. And, and the Red Sox are probably going nowhere. Probably going nowhere. Meanwhile, thank you so much, listeners, for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, like Duke Goldman, walk that walk. You only give me your funny paper And in the middle of me goes There's nothing like being in the same room at the same time, sharing your experiences with other women. At Cancer Connections Breast Cancer Support Group, we can laugh or cry. With our burdens lifted, even for a little while, we can go back to our lives better able to handle dealing with cancer and all it entails. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Fake and Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion WHMP animals. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. We begin in Los Angeles, where city workers have joined striking actors, writers, and hotel employees on picket lines. Correspondent Mark Strassman is at LAX. Strikers are up bright and early. We're also hearing there's a caravan that could be driving around the airport to disrupt traffic, which is bound to tick some people off. But hundreds of thousands of workers, just like these folks, are around the country are just demanding higher wages and benefits. The 24-hour workout delays garbage pickup because Custodians have stopped cleaning public bathrooms, and at least some public school pools, that is, are closing. The mayor says city emergency police and firefighting services will continue. Heavy thunderstorms turned deadly along the East Coast. One person in Alabama was killed by a lightning strike. Another in South Carolina hit by a falling tree. This woman in Knoxville, Tennessee, grabbed her dog. I noticed the shift in the rain and the wind, and my power flickered. And at that point, you know, I just grabbed him, and we got in the bathtub. About 300,000 customers still have no power. An update on a massive brawl with racial overtones. CBS's Jim Cursula reports. Several arrest warrants have been issued related to a fight along the riverfront in Montgomery, Alabama that quickly escalated. 
video show a group of white people attacking a black dock worker after he asked them to move their pontoon boat. Several of the man's co-workers came to his defense. Just in from the Caribbean, the U.S. Embassy in Haiti says it has closed after gunfire nearby. All personnel have been restricted to embassy compounds. It comes after months of violence by gangs who've driven thousands of Haitians onto the streets to demand security. An American nurse and her young daughter were kidnapped last month. Their captors are demanding $1 million in ransom. New research finds mammograms aren't always a good thing. CBS's Cami McCormick explains. This study out of Yale Medical School finds women 70 and older who underwent mammograms were more apt to be diagnosed with tumors posing no threat to their health. More than 30% of breast cancer cases were overdiagnosed. And as age increased, so did the possibility, up to 54% in those 85 and older. In Bray, Ireland, Sinead O'Connor fans lined the street in front of her childhood home to pay respects as her casket passed by. After seeing and living her whole journey, she inspired me to be more myself. Her funeral was led by an Islamic scholar. The singer's body was found at her London apartment last month. Dow Down 386. This is CBS News. Hire with minimal effort and max speed with Indeed. Their hiring solution platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates efficiently. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Deerfield woman accused of stabbing an 82-year-old Montague man is pleading not guilty. 29-year-old Katie Flanagan was working for the wife of the man she allegedly stabbed as a personal care attendant. The victim alleges he was stabbed by Flanagan while sitting in his wheelchair in the kitchen, listening to his police scanner. Flanagan alleges the man made sexual advances toward her, and she used the knife to defend herself. The case was moved on Friday to Franklin Superior Court due to its severity. A pretrial hearing is scheduled for December 5th. Northampton is considering its own pregnancy center ordinance in an effort to strengthen women's rights to reproductive and gender-affirming care. City Councilor Rachel Maori is leading the charge, working with the Board of Health to gain their full endorsement. A similar ordinance was vetoed in East Hampton by East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. Six of seven boat ramps along the Connecticut River are now open. The State Department of Fish and Game made the announcement yesterday after having to close them for several weeks due to the flooding. The Oxbow Ramp in East Hampton, the ramp off Main Street in Hatfield, and the Sunderland Ramp on School Street are among those access points to the river that are now reopened. Private marinas including Brunel's in South Hadley and Sportsman's Marina in Hadley are also back open. Massachusetts Environmental Police are still urging caution, however, due to significant changes in the channels, river currents, and bank erosion. 
Humid and stormy out there today. Potentially strong storms even this morning. And then another round of scattered showers and storms this afternoon. Be ready to get inside if you have outdoor plans. A high of 78 to 82. Lingering evening shower tonight. Then partial clearing. An overnight low of 58 to 64. Mostly sunny breezy here tomorrow. A high of 82 to 86. Another round of showers possible on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis. 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off. You know, uh, we have uh, this wonderful monthly segment. Bill and I are both lawyers who love uh, dabbling in constitutional law, and we always have with us the uh, uh, extraordinary, uh, skillful, knowledgeable, uh, Professor Emeritus from Western New England University School of Law, Bruce Miller. We call the segment First Monday. Well, today is Tuesday. Bruce, uh, you're down in Philadelphia um, with the blessing of uh, of family stuff, right? Exactly right. I'm down here visiting uh, one of my daughters and her husband and their four sons. So, boy, it's been grandchild central for Jane and me down here these last four or five days. Well, how dare you prioritize them over Bill and I? Pardon me? How dare you prioritize them over Bill and Buzz? Well, exactly, exactly right. It's it's pretty shocking, pretty shocking (laughs) these days. It shows what happens when you're a retired law teacher. (laughs) There you go. Well, you also you're there in the uh, in the seat uh, from which our uh, Constitution sprouted. I always love being in Philadelphia. I love the Constitution Center there, and love going to the Independence Mall. Yeah, it's really is always moving. But so, I want to ask you about um, the January the charges against uh, the former president, the forty fifth president Donald Trump that were brought by special counsel Jack Smith and his team on behalf of the Justice Department. Um, And uh, he uh, was indicted. He has been arraigned. Um, It's been the story. Uh, And uh, we have... He's represented by somebody by the name of John Loro. And I wanted to ask you, what are the defenses that attorney John Loro has uh, forecasted for us he will be employing, and what do you think of them? Yeah, well, uh, Mr. Loro is offering two defenses. One, he's offering pretty much every day, all the time, wherever he can, and it's a constant theme that he's striking, and that is that everything President, former President Trump and at the time President Trump did in connection with January 6th, and for which he's now been indicted, was protected political speech within uh, the coverage uh, of the First Amendment's protection of freedom of speech. Uh, That's the uh, central defense. The second defense, so far a minor chord, but I think we'll hear more and more about it, is that uh, former President Trump was justifiably relying on the advice of his lawyers, uh, in undertaking his uh, efforts to turn uh, the 2020 election results uh, around. Most specifically, uh, John Eastman and perhaps to a lesser extent, Sidney Powell. 
those are the are the two uh, defenses. And uh, this idea of of freedom of speech is one that that uh, resonates deeply with all Americans. That is, we all value freedom of speech across the political spectrum. We all see it as applying especially profoundly in the case of politics. Uh, the main point of the First Amendment is is to protect free political advocacy. The, the problem with the defense, or at least the likely problem with that defense, is that while the First Amendment does indeed uh, protect robust political advocacy, uh, all political advocacy short of incitement to violence, what it does not protect is something that sounds like that but is significantly different. And that is the use of words to accomplish a crime that the government has a right to protect against. Here's an example. Um, anyone in the United States under the First Amendment is absolutely free uh, to advocate against, let's say, uh, anti-discrimination laws and to say that they're a bad idea, that they are not justified, uh, that they ought to be changed. But what uh, we are not permitted to do, um, uh, at, at least as far as the First Amendment is concerned, is to use words in order to accomplish the discrimination that is prohibited by anti-discrimination laws. So uh, an, uh, an employer can, can, uh, can complain and urge Congress to change the laws and say the laws are a bad idea, but if the employer through the use of words, uh, fires an employee on account of race uh, in a way that's barred by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, that employer can be punished under the, the Civil Rights Act. So the fact that words are used is not enough uh, to exonerate someone who uses them. The First Amendment doesn't protect all speech. What it protects is freedom of speech, which is very robust. Uh, but which does not include the use of words to accomplish crimes. So and as the, you, and the crimes, yeah, go ahead, Buzz. No, I was just going to say, Bruce Miller, that that uh, I'm just going to amplify what you just said. Every conspiracy, three of the four counts for which the former president has been charged yes. in the indictment and for which he was arraigned in uh, D.C. Uh, involve conspiracy. Uh, allegations of a conspiracy, and every conspiracy means talking. Yes. It means speech. It means talking. That it I means I, an agreement. An agreement. Yeah. And yep. so, Dan, I want to uh, rob the bank while you drive the car. You know that that but, is speech. But doesn't it also require one act as well in furtherance and, of and that a conspiracy? Conspiracy absolutely requires one act, but significantly, that act can itself be talking. So, for example, let's let's imagine, uh, we don't have to imagine it, we pretty much know that it happened, uh, Trump's efforts to uh, convince Mike Pence uh, to reject electoral votes submitted by five or six of, of the states. Uh, there's a conspiracy there alleged between Trump and his various uh, advisors, particularly his legal advisors. But then there is an overt act, and the overt act is Trump's 
phone call to Pence on the morning of January the 6th. The fact that that phone call involves talking uh, does not mean that it is uh, not also an effort to defraud the United States. Um, fraud is almost always accomplished entirely through speech. So uh, this idea of an overt act, while essential to conspiracy law, uh, is not a way of, of uh, uh, excluding uh, prosecution of, of conspiracies that are accomplished through uh, the use of words. There, there is a, a major problem, I think, for Smith, um, one that I think he's well prepared to overcome, and that is that with, with, with respect to this fraud charge, he has to show that Trump intended to defraud the United States. And that means he has to show that Trump knew that the uh, schemes that he was involved in, influencing Pence, uh, the organizing of fake, fake electors, urging on the crowd on January the 6th, trying to get Jeffrey Clark uh, to say that the uh, elections were flawed in some way, all, all of that. Trump has to have known that there was no ground or basis for any of that. And uh, uh, Trump uh, and, and, and Loro on his behalf will, of course, also argue that he believed that everything that he was doing uh, was, was, in fact, warranted by the facts. So we, uh, we have this notion, Bruce Miller, in the law. You're talking about intent, and I think listeners have been reading that intent has to be proven. But can you describe what this term that we use, mens rea, means? What, yeah. what is mens rea? Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm no, I'm no uh, expert in, 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 the, in the criminal law, nor am I an expert in the legal use of Latin phrases, although it's an occupational hazard that we all suffer <laughs> to become familiar with a little bit of it. But mens rea refers to just what we've been talking about, the idea of criminal intent, the knowledge that what one was doing was criminal. And, and this kind of mens rea is, is, is usually a, a requirement um, for criminal prosecutions, but is specifically so in prosecutions for, for fraud. It's also at least possible uh, that the, the second and third charges, the ones that focus on Trump's efforts to obstruct an official proceeding, that is the meeting of Congress on January the 6th, uh, in order to count the electoral votes and uh, certify them uh, as as resolving the the election, uh, those uh, obstruction counts may, and I'm saying may because it's a contested legal question, may require proof of corrupt intent on Trump's part. That is an intention to gain something that he was not entitled to. And whether or not that is what we call a specific intent crime, that he has to know he wasn't entitled to have the election go his way, um, is, is something that uh, will be vociferously argued uh, by Lauro. So these two defenses, uh, the, the uh, state of mind for fraud and the corrupt intent for obstruction, these, to me, are uh, more worrisome problems for a successful prosecution of Trump 
by uh, Special Prosecutor Smith than the First, of, the First Amendment uh, arguments. The First Amendment arguments are designed, I think, to resonate with the public, and I think they will. And I think that uh, they, they will and already have gotten some support, I think wrongheadedly so, from the profession. Uh, there, there are some reputable lawyers who are saying uh, Trump not only had a right to advocate, he had a right to try to effectuate his beliefs, um, and that that is also protected by the First Amendment. Now, there, uh, uh, we'd have to have substantial change in our understanding of, of the limits of First Amendment protection uh, in order for that argument to succeed, because uh, the First Amendment, uh, as we were talking about right at the beginning of this discussion, does not protect the use of words uh, in order to accomplish crimes that the government has a right to punish. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting and deeply important times uh, ahead. Uh, we can also talk, if you guys would like to, about, about the uh, uh, advice of counsel defense. Well, Professor uh, Miller, I, I, this is Dan. Uh, I'm, a non, yeah, Dan. I'm the non-lawyer here, but here's my question for you. Absolutely. And, and it ties into what you were just talking about, the free speech yep. discussion, yep. right? Yep. So I've... Uh, watched a little bit of you know Fox News and maybe some montages that actually get aired on MSNBC, and yeah. one of the arguments they're making is, look, all of these other Democrats like Hillary Clinton and all of them also claimed that you know the the election was illegitimate or blah 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 or that Trump didn't win or Trump won because yeah, yeah. of Russia and all of these things. Sure, sure. And I'm thinking now here as a non-lawyer. Is right, the right, reason right. why there this isn't a conspiracy because yes they might have said that even if they yep. conceded the election but they did nothing to there's no Ferdinand's there's no evidence that they were like well he's illegitimate so now I'm going to try to you know remove exactly. him from power somehow right that's the difference is that's they, exactly it Trump took all of these specific steps to change the outcome uh, I don't know of any evidence that anybody else. Uh, in our country's history, has ever done that. Um, and that's what makes uh, Trump's situation unique. Um, anything that uh, Hillary Clinton had, had to say uh, was, was complaint about, uh, about the outcome, perhaps an attribution of the outcome to interference by Russia, um, uh, various, various sort of charges that she made. But she took no steps to change the outcome. Uh, back in 2000, neither Bush nor Gore did anything beyond, as far as I know, uh, advocacy in order to affect the outcome there. They didn't take any specific steps uh, that could be described as fraudulent or attempts to uh, obstruct. Now, close to the attempt to obstruct, but never charged back in, uh, in 2000, were things like the so-called uh, Brooks Brothers demonstrations in, in Miami to keep votes from being counted there. That's the sort of thing that could have been an act. But the key thing here is, is speech as advocacy and speech for the purpose of furthering a crime. Okay, we are uh, going to. That's the heart of it. That is the heart of it. And we're going to come back and talk to 
Professor Bruce Miller more about this second defense he's alluding to, which is, hey, I was just listening to the legal advice that my lawyers gave me. Not criminal to follow your lawyer's advice. We'll be right back with Professor Bruce Miller right after this. More this Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Vice President of Mortgage Originations at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Did you know now is the perfect time to save on your mortgage? I'm mortgage originator Kimberly Gates. That's right. At Greenfield Co-op, it pays to get pre-approved. I'm mortgage originator Jessica Eau Claire. If you're looking to buy a home, be sure to get a GCB pre-approval to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan amount, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. Your local agent working in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. This is First Monday on a Tuesday with Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller, the constitutional scholar and uh, the uh, longtime uh, esteemed professor of law at Western New England University School of Law. And we are talking about the defenses that um, uh, Donald Trump's attorney is um, offering so far. He's giving us a little window into what we can expect as the uh, January 6th litigations, uh, the charges uh, which are being brought by Jack Smith, the special counsel to the Justice Department, is bringing. You have mentioned, Bruce Miller, um, the First Amendment one, which we keep hearing about on the news, but what about if you have attorneys who are advising you to do something which it turns out is unlawful and you yep. believe their legal counsel to be accurate, can you be held accountable for this bad legal advice? Well, you know, you can, but it's also possible that you can't. Uh, this is much more, uh, I think, and, and it depends 
kinds of kind of argument. Uh, again, I think that that uh, uh, Trump and Loro's position here is is relatively weak, but I don't think it is as weak as their proposed First Amendment defense. The reason is that uh, reliance on uh, reasonable advice of counsel can be uh, a defense to uh, an act that would otherwise be uh, a crime. Um, the question here is, did, did Trump have reasonable advice of counsel? And when we're talking about reasonable, we're always talking about a question um, of, of judgment. So with respect to this defense, you know, it's by and large going to be based on John Eastman's theory uh, that uh, uh, fake electors uh, could legitimately be organized in the contested states and presented to Congress on January 6th, and that then Mike Pence had the power uh, to either the, accept these fake electors or at least say that their presence required some kind of a remand of the election back to the state legislatures. Now, this is, um, as, as Pence uh, seems to be acknowledging now, a crackpot theory, um, and it, it may well not have been sincerely held by Eastman. He might have been using it uh, only opportunistically. Uh, so there are really problems with how reasonable this particular uh, alleged uh, uh, reliance on the right of counsel uh, was. It's also true that, uh, that Trump got all kinds of advice through his normal channels. Uh, for example, uh, White House counsel, uh, the top people in the Justice Department, that there was nothing to Eastman's ideas, that they were uh, really, really off the wall. And he heard all of that, and he chose to reject all of that. So if we're looking at the advice of counsel he got on the whole, uh, it's it's very hard to uh, credit Eastman's theories uh, as really being providing a reasonable basis for what what Trump uh, did. Uh, uh, he, Trump also clearly seemed to have sought out the advice of people who would tell him what he wanted to hear in Eastman and and uh, and Sidney Powell. So there are there are all kinds of problems in the weeds here for Trump's effort to rely on advice of counsel. Uh, but as a theory, I think it does probably get off the ground. And well, let, let's, let's talk about whether yeah, it gets ahead. off the ground. I'm going to yeah. two two scenarios here. Scenario number one: your lawyer says, "Yeah, you can rob that bank. It's okay yeah. because you're justified because uh, yeah. uh, you were because a depositor and they ripped you off." Clearly, you don't want to follow that lawyer's advice. That's right. Clearly, if That's you do, right. you can't say my lawyer told me to rob the bank and That's get right. expect to get off. But something yes. which you're calling weedy here yes. is the yes. Constitution mentions that electors shall be chosen by the several states. It's a matter yes. for state, each state to determine. And, for yes. example, we have some states like Maine who will apportion electors in accordance with the right. vote that each side got. If one side got 50% of the vote in the general election, then 50% of the electors go to that person and 50% to the other in a two-party system. Most yep. states, like Massachusetts, is winner-take-all, 
Uh, so the state determines how to choose electors. So John Eastman was saying, in that regard, it should go back to the state legislature, and that's what should happen, Mr. President. And you could, is that? That's right. Is that's, that yeah, reasonable? That's essentially Eastman's theory. And, and although, although that theory is, is wrong, it is only in this term that the Supreme Court, as we talked about last month, appears to have rejected the idea that the state legislatures have untrammeled power uh, to decide the results uh, of, of elections. And, and Loro is going to be able to argue for Trump. Well, that was a contested theory at the time. Uh, people could reasonably believe that, uh, that the state legislature could do what it wanted to do. A big problem with that argument, of course, is that the state legislatures actually did nothing after the 2020 election to try to change the results in any of the contested states. The, uh, the, the electors uh, that were presented in, from these states uh, to Congress were self-selected, not selected by the legislatures. And that's another much further step. What Eastman was trying to do was to get Pence to give the legislatures an opportunity retroactively to endorse these groups of, of phony electors. It's very hard uh, to imagine anybody thinking that that was a reasonable theory at the time. Very hard, but not impossible. So one of the things that we're going to see is, is pretrial litigation over both of these defenses. And we will, we will see what, uh, what probably pretty quickly uh, what uh, Judge uh, Chutkin uh, thinks of them because uh, uh, we have every reason to suspect that Lauro will file motions to dismiss the indictment, if, if, if only to buy time, and to try to uh, seek an interlocutory appeals of any rulings uh, against uh, former President Trump by Judge Chutkin in response to these pretrial motions. So we're going to get a sense of what the judge thinks of both of these defenses, the First Amendment defense, uh, and the uh, uh, reliance on counsel defense, probably sooner in the scheme of things rather than, than later. So, Professor Bruce Miller, quite often attorneys, myself included, you know, we use words like uh, it depends. We use words mm -hmm. like reasonable, and it really rankles a lot of people. What do you mean by reasonable? Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to throw out in a couple of minutes that we have left sure. that we use reasonable. We try to measure what is reasonable. Was it reasonable to trust that John Eastman's theory that if we come up with our own panel of electors and they are presented on January 6th and the vice president recognizes them, then it gets thrown back to those state legislatures. Was that reasonable? And we use a measure that, that goes something like this. To determine what's reasonable, use an imaginary person of ordinary prudence. Would a person yes. of ordinary prudence consider it reasonable for a pre sitting president who appears to have lost the election to choose a panel of fake electors to throw it back to the legislature? Would that be reasonable, Professor Miller? Uh, would that be reasonable? You know, I, I certainly don't think it would be reasonable, but your initial point, Buzz, is probably the important one, and that is it is always, it is always a matter of judgment. Uh, you know, uh, uh, these uh, judges who uh, who are in charge of of, of uh, President uh, former President Trump's fate, 
at least uh, at least uh, for for a while are going to make decisions on these on these matters. Um, and you know, so for example, if if any of this reaches the Supreme Court, my, my own view is that there are two justices there who maybe President Trump can count on to do anything he would like them to do that they would consider. Uh, his actions to be to be reasonable. So re- reasonableness, uh, although I, I believe in it, I think it's an important standard. It remains true uh, that as many things in many things in the law, uh, people disagree about what's reasonable. But I think the way you put it is just right. Was it reasonable for President Trump to rely on this uh, uh, theory of, of Eastman's about phony electors. Well, I'll tell you what is reasonable. It's reasonable to rely on the expertise and the insights of Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller, who is joining us to talk about constitutional law from the birthplace of the Constitution there in Philadelphia. Enjoy the rest of your time with your family. And as always, Bruce Miller, thank you so much for joining us and explaining this to us. Thanks so much, Buzz. See you next month. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking about the legacy of two local giants in their uh, citizenship, uh, Juanita and Wally Nelson, and their legacy right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Deerfield woman accused of stabbing an 82-year-old Montague man is pleading not guilty. 29-year-old Katie Flanagan was working for the wife of the man she allegedly stabbed as a personal care attendant. The victim alleges he was stabbed by Flanagan while sitting in his wheelchair in the kitchen, listening to his police scanner. Flanagan alleges the man made sexual advances toward her, and she used the knife to defend herself. The case was moved on Friday to Franklin Superior Court due to its severity. A pretrial hearing is scheduled for December 5th. Northampton is considering its own pregnancy center ordinance in an effort to strengthen women's rights to reproductive and gender-affirming care. City Councilor Rachel Mayori is leading the charge, working with the Board of Health to gain their full endorsement. A similar ordinance was vetoed in East Hampton by East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle. Six of seven boat ramps along the Connecticut River are now open. The State Department of Fish and Game made the announcement yesterday after having to close them for several weeks due to the flooding. The Oxbow Ramp in East Hampton, the ramp off Main Street in Hatfield, and the Sunderland Ramp on School Street are among those access points to the river that are now reopened. Private marinas, including Brunel's in South Hadley and Sportsman's Marina in Hadley, are also back open. Massachusetts Environmental Police are still urging caution, however, due to significant changes in the channels, river currents, and bank erosion. Humid and stormy out there today, potentially strong storms even this morning, and then another round of scattered showers and storms this afternoon. Be ready to get inside if you have outdoor plans. A high of 78 to 82, lingering evening shower tonight, then partial clearing, an overnight low of 58 to 64. Mostly sunny breezy here tomorrow, a high of 82 to 86, another round of showers possible on Thursday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP.
When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with Without unnecessary risk, Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. You know, today we have uh, spent much time celebrating local heroes, and uh, there are some local heroes right here in the studio with me. Uh, I'll tell you, a local hero who is not in the studio is Randy Keeler. Um, and Juanita Nelson and Wally Nelson, who is in the studio, is uh, Betsy Corner and Bob Beatty. They have, for decades, been trumpeting the truth. I hate to use the word trump. Anything with that <laughs> syllable in it no longer works. But um, talking uh, about the truth as activists, they've been um, uh, stalwart, foundational, um, people in the progressive movement in Western Massachusetts and well beyond. Um, and I want to start um, by talking to Betsy Corner about some a very special uh, uh, a series of events that are going to be happening at the Woolman Hill Conference Center. Hello, Betsy. Good morning, Buzz. Thank you so much for having us here and uh, that generous uh, introduction. Uh, we're here because we really want to encourage people of all ages to come and uh, participate, learn, be inspired, share their experience about activism. Um, come if you're not an activist and you want to be and you want to learn about nonviolence because the Nelsons were all about nonviolence and uh, everyday nonviolence. Well, let's talk about Juanita and Wally. What can you tell us about Juanita and Wally Nelson? Bob Beatty. Hi. Hi. I, hey, Buzz. If you get nice and tight uh, to that right, microphone. That? That's good. That's so, good. you know, Wally and Juanita Nelson were um, a- activists from, you know, the mid-20th century. Wally was in jail in World War II for refusing to serve in the Army. He met Juanita... Um, while he was a prisoner when she was a young reporter for a Cleveland newspaper. Um, they, were, they were very active in the civil rights movement right after World War II. 
pioneering a lot of Gandhian tactics. Um, you know, Wally went on a, a freedom ride in 1947. And, you know, so they had this long career of, as activists. And then in the late 60s, they started thinking about their day-to-day -day lifestyle and how that needed to conform to their beliefs. And um, that ended up leading them to Woolman Hill where they were subsistence farmers for the next 30, 40 years. Um, they still continued their activism, but what Wally and Juanita was about was this comprehensive understanding of nonviolence and belief in nonviolence and practice of nonviolence. And when we started the Nelson Legacy Project, it was very clear to us that we were not so much celebrating Wally and Juanita. That's not what they wanted. They would want us to be talking about their beliefs and their lifestyle and these ideas about nonviolence as, as, as a powerful force to change a world that's very problematic and it's very violent. So you mentioned the woman, woman Hill. Yeah. For those who don't know, anybody who has been an activist in this region knows about Woman Hill and the Woman Hill Conference Center. But can you explain what Woman Hill is and what their connection to Woman Hill, that is Wally and Juanita Nelson's Bob Beatty, please explain that. Yeah, Wally and Juanita moved to Woman Hill. Randy uh, got them connected. Randy Keeler. To, Randy Keeler got them connected to Woman Hill in nineteen, you know, nineteen seventy four. They were living in New Mexico, looking for some land that they could afford to farm on. And at the time, it was uh, it was an alternative school, and uh, Wally and Juanita moved there and negotiated with the Quakers that owned the land to have a lifetime lease. Um, and Wally and Juanita, you know, w were there until they died. Um, for the last several decades, Woolman Hill has been a conference center. Um, for so. progressive matters. And by the way, Randy Keeler, we have been speaking of Randy Keeler over this last month or so. We've been, uh, we've had on the, um, uh, professor at the University of Massachusetts who has uh, been curating the Daniel Ellsberg papers, the Pentagon, p famous Pentagon papers uh, uh, originator, um, Daniel Ellsberg, and Randy Keeler is very close, as were you, Betsy Corner, with Daniel mm -hmm. Ellsberg and those issues. So it, it, even for younger people who don't know uh, how heroically... Um, the deep state has been contested by Randy and Betsy and Bob Beatty and Juanita and, and Wally. Um, they, they are anchors in the nonviolent movement, the protest movement here in Western Massachusetts. So, Betsy, can you tell me a little bit, this Nelson Legacy Project, what is going to happen? When is it going to happen? Why should people care? Um, it's happening... Thursday starts Thursday evening, goes through Sunday morning, August 17th through 20th. Um, we were hoping people would stay for the whole time, but we realized that, you know, due to work and activities, um, we may get people for Saturday, and that's great if you want to come for the day. We just want to know if you're coming, um, so if you could register or email us, and we'll give that information out. Um, that would be great. Just so for food purposes, but basically we've got a great um, group of presenters, facilitators who are going to 
talk about their particular interest, whether it's um, climate organizing, and I'll just give a plug. Randy's niece, my niece, uh, is coming from Boston. She has become a XR, Extinction Rebellion activist, at age 33, 35, and been arrested twice now at actions and organizing. Getting erect, arrested for activism is a gene. She inherited the gene, is that <laughs> well, right? But she didn't, she wasn't there for a long time. And, and her mother, Randy's sister, has also um, stepped up to that plate, which just has amazed us and delighted us. Um, so mother and daughter have been doing this, and Julia will be talking about uh, climate organizing, the alternative approach of nonviolence, because XR is a nonviolent organization, which is terrific. Um, and she'll be talking about you know what they're doing and why, and and facilitating a conversation about how we want to move into this extreme crisis. Um, with nonviolent methods, because that's really, as I see it, as we see it, the only way to go. Um, so Bob just shared with us, we're, it's not so much um, to uh, an homage to Wally and Juanita personally, because they would not want that. But what they want is an homage to what they believed in for so many decades, right. um, that is uh, uh, actively... Uh, pointing out society's ills, but doing it through nonviolence. Um, that was their passion. That's what they stood for. You knew them very well. What did they mean to you, Betsy Corner? Well, they, they set a really high standard. <laughs> and, you know, I, I often felt judged. For some reason, it was my own self-judgment for years. And then when we went into the tax refusal um, and had our house seized and Bob's house you seized. You and Randy and you, Bob Beatty, you were yeah. war tax resistors. You, instead of paying money to the war machine by taxes, you donated it to things that you believed in. Um, uh, so it cost you the same amount of money, but you gave it to a better cause than U.S. munitions and the like. Uh, so you were war tax resistors willing to go to jail, which Randy... Keeler was in prison for what, two years? No, no. Well, that was for the draft refusal. No, um, he was um, in prison for two and a half months, I think. Ten weeks. Ten yeah. weeks. Oh, ten weeks. That's a right. long time when you're a 12-year-old, which our daughter was, 11-year-old, um, but uh, Christmas time. Um, and we didn't know if he would be getting out, when he would be getting out. But anyway, um, Wally and Manita were at the core of that resistance and mentoring us, um, you know, really holding, helping us hold it together and going for the long run because that's what they were used to. Um, you know, they, they functioned during civil rights and uh, that was no short-term short -term protest. So, uh, yeah. Well, we are talking with local heroes, activists, Bob Beatty and... Betsy Corner, uh, we're talking about from August 17th to the 20th at the Woman Hill Conference Center in Deerfield. Uh, we are going to be celebrating the Nelson Legacy Project um, and everything that Juanita and Wally Nelson meant to us and to the nonviolent movement. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be back with Bob and with Betsy right after these messages. The Gulf Stream waters... This land was made for you and me. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back in what might seem to some people as old history is, in fact, very vibrant. And um, the presence, the passion, the intelligence of Juanita Nelson and Wally Nelson, both now deceased, um, still is very much alive and well and it will be celebrated um, in the Nelson uh, Legacy Project that uh, starting this Thursday, August 17th, and through the 20th, there's going to be a whole lot of activities for um, people um, to demonstrate when the role of nonviolent activism in our daily living. And here in the studio, we're talking to Bessie Corner and Bob Beatty. Bob, can you tell us... Yeah. What is going to be going on during yeah, the and, next week? And there's so much going on, I probably can't remember it all. So check the website out, nelsonhomestead.org. Click on the link at the top for the conference, and you could see all the things that I'll forget. But um, we've got about a dozen workshops going on. Besides, besides um, the climate issue, um, alternative economics with Chuck Collins, uh, a workshop on war tax resistance, uh, a workshop, uh, the history of nonviolence in the United States since the mid-20th century, sort of Wally and Juanita's time, um, workshops on simple living, workshops on, a workshop on um, organic subsistence farming. Uh, we also have 
Juanita was a prolific writer, and um, Louis Bataan has been uh, writing, putting together a compilation of her works. He's got a workshop going on about Juanita's writings. There'll be in the evening on Friday evening, um, people that um, were at his workshop will be reading some of Juanita's stuff. And Juanita was also a playwright, and Court Dorsey from Wendell is going to be directing for the first time one of Juanita's plays on Saturday night. Um, we also have several musicians, um, you know, lots of good food. Cake and ice cream. Cake and ice cream on Saturday night. And yeah, there'll be a lot going on, you know. Um, Betsy, why is this conference, this multi-day conference with all these activities that Bob Beatty was just describing, why do you think it's important for people to consider attending? Because I think people need more hope um, these days and getting, you know, as probably most of you, your audience has heard, if you're doing something about what you're concerned, um, worried, then then it eases your pain. <laughs> you know, if I if I, I really need to get back into activism myself, and so I'm probably going to get more involved after this conference is over in in stepping up to the plate with the climate issue because that what that's what hits me. Um, you know, anybody with anybody they love <laughs> wants them to survive. So um, nonviolence is is a contra. It's not a controversial issue. It's it's a way to function. Um, and speak politically with clout. I mean, we have King, we have Gandhi, we have civil rights, Rosa Parks, uh, Juanita Nelson, you know, all these people who have, have put their lives at risk and yet done so without violence. And that's, you know, violence begets violence. So if you're going to protest or try and change people's minds, nonviolence is the answer in, in our minds. And um, this is a way to talk about it with other people who've been there and done it and those who are just starting. So we want people to participate. Those who are younger um, or maybe those who are older and have forgotten, Wally Nelson spent three years in federal prison for his draft mm -hmm. refusal. Um, and that's where he and Juanita met. Bob Beatty, you, you, you know that about them. Yeah, I, I met Wally and Juanita when I was 18 in 1970. I'll be 71 later this month. And, and you know, and I'd already been a, an activist in high school, but most of the people I was activist with in high school had already burnt out by that point. You know, and I ran into Wally and Juanita and, and these other ancient people, and they had this philosophy, and it, you know, it kind of made sense, and it it's kept me an activist, you know, not in the middle of things for, for the last 50-something years. They were a model. They, for those who don't know, they're African-Americans, and they both participated in the first Freedom Rides to challenge racist segregation on interstate buses and, in 1947. And, and they were, you know, they were not, they were not heavies. They were incredibly accessible people. Um, you know, they did not have an occult around them. They were not controlling. They just did it by example and who they were. And when we started the Nelson Legacy Project, which this conference is, is, is a big event for us, 
what we were trying to do is preserve those ideals of activating everyday nonviolence, and that's what we're hoping to spread through this conference. This is Dan. How did this organization get started? Uh, we have about a minute left. So uh, A few years recap. ago, Wally Juanita's cabin was in disrepair. Um, they were going to knock it down at Woman Hill. People got together and rehabbed it. And then we started thinking, okay, where do we go from here? We don't want to create a museum for Wally Juanita, but we want to keep their ideals alive. So that's, that's and I think Juanita died in 2015. Is 15, that right? Yep. And this would be her hundredth anniversary. I mean, hundredth birthday. birthday. August 17th is her 100th birthday. And so this conference is sponsored by the Nelson Legacy Project at Woolman Hill. And uh, Nelson, Homestead. if you're old enough to remember the Nelsons, remember what they stood for, remember what they did. And celebrate it if you're a young person who wants to learn uh, more about activism and nonviolence and ways to make a difference uh, in these times when we all feel so powerless. Um, this is an empowering event. It's August 17th to the 20th. One more time. What's Nelson, the website, Bob? Nelsonhomestead.org. Nelsonhomestead, one word, dot org. Please check it out. It's a really important thing that we celebrate activism and nonviolence. And meanwhile, thank you so much. Betsy Corner, it's great to see you. Bob Beatty, it's great to see you as well. Thank you Thanks, for joining Buzz. us. And you listeners, thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk. Like Betsy, like Bob, like Juanita and Wally and Randy. Talk the Talk. Find local news and local talk for the Valley which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating? but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, 